Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. For decades, we've been filling our plates with fruit and vegetables from California's Central Valley and with meat fattened by the golden fields of the Corn Belt. But the future of almonds and soybeans looks grim. Industrial agriculture yields massive crops, but in the process destroys its own foundations, groundwater, and topsoil. In his new book, Perilous Bounty, Journalist and former farmer Tom Philpot explores the contradictions in our food supply by narrowing his focus to these agricultural essentials, water and earth. He reveals a quiet emergency happening on our fruited plains, profiles the farmers adapting old ways to a new era, and suggests ways that we might reimagine not only the future of food, but that of the people who grow, pick, and package it. Tom Philpot joins us from North Carolina to talk about getting back to the land in a way that just might deliver us from the sins of big soy. Thanks for talking to us, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. So the pandemic spotlighted a lot of existing problems in our food production system, especially the meatpacking industries, for example. But pretty much every industry has been hit. Um, And you've been covering that in particular since March, and your book, of course, dives into all of the underlying issues. But I was wondering, you know, since the pandemic began, since you've been promoting your book kind of in the middle of it, what have you been seeing? Well, I mean, I think it's been just a really interesting time to be out there talking about a book that's about the sort of peril of the food system, because the pandemic really did shine a spotlight, I think, on something that my book didn't get into because I sort of I sort of made my book really tightly focused. I wanted people to see what the environmental uh, implications were in the regions where their food is grown and show that they are that you know the way we're growing food is basically attacking the very resources that makes food production possible in those places. And so I didn't focus too much on workers but this uh, this pandemic has just ripped the veil off of the food system. Basically, most of the low wage uh, jobs in the United States are in the food system. They're in meatpacking, and we're just seeing that you know we just saw the power of the industry to um, 
push back any kind of federal regulation, push back OSHA, which is supposed to um, overlook, um, you know, uh, safety for, for workers in the workplace. It's, you know, the industry has been able to completely push all that out of the way, get its workers into work without social distancing, churning out, you know, huge amounts of meat every day. And we've just seen it rip through these places and cause massive human misery. And this is this is a workforce that makes, on average, about $12 an hour. It's largely immigrant. In poultry, it's largely women. Uh, and now we're seeing it rip through um, farm workers. Uh, we've seen grocery workers, fast food workers have, have crises. And so it's just really exposed this yet other, you know, perilous part of the bounty that we rely on, that it literally consumes the lives of workers uh, for very, very low wages. You know, it has done the food industry no favors in sort of making us not think about the destruction that it's causing. And it makes me think of something that you've written elsewhere. And I think that your book really brings home, which is that climate justice and food justice are really the same fight. And, you know, the things that you're talking about reveal that, well, actually, you know, labor justice might also be part of the same fight. One thing that I, I, I found researching the book that I already knew, but it was really driven home. And that is when you go into the areas where industrial food production is really prominent. Uh, and, the, you know, my book focuses on the Central Valley of California and Iowa. One of the things that you can't help but notice is that the economies in those places for the people who live there are completely wrecked. Um, um, there's high, there, t- there tends to be pretty high unemployment rates um, because there's been a push in farming um, to mechanization, um, to um, making uh, jobs less and less skilled, less and less well-paid, uh, fewer, and fe- fewer people have to do them, um, and it pollutes water and air as a matter of course. And so the, you know, the crux of of the situation in those places is that it's this really destructive force. And I I was thinking about that and I've been writing about that for 15 years and I've been asking myself, how do I make people pay, you know, pay attention to this? How do I make people outside of these areas care? And it's really, really difficult. And when I got the idea that when I really, you know, came to this realization in the mid 2010s, you know, in the, middle part of the last decade that both of these regions that really feed you know that we kind of for feeding us are an ecological in a state of ecological unraveling i was like well maybe this is the crowbar this is the lever that i use to open this up um and and you know show people why it does matter to them people in those areas who are organizing for cleaner water for better wages they are really organizing for a food system that is less destructive. Um, if, a, if, if our farming system, as a matter of course, pollutes water in the Central Valley of California and, and in Iowa and makes it really hard to live there, um, then when those people fight for clean water and clean air, they're really fighting for a better food system for everyone that preserves the ecological basis. Uh, and so it really is all tied together, is, is what I argue, and, and what I really came to see in the course of researching the book. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that you are able to reduce down all of the many different problems of industrial agriculture to these like two very central things that you just can't avoid, the quality of the soil and the quality of the water, is just so 
elegant in a way. And, you know, there's been comparatively more noise about pesticides and genetically modified food and all of these other sort of hot button issues. But I mean, how did you essentially arrive at focusing on soil erosion and then groundwater depletion? I started writing about the stuff around 2004, 2005. And I would say for about the first decade that I was doing it, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate that I was in the middle of around genetically modified foods. And I think that ended up being a little bit of a distraction. And I think what I started doing probably early in the 2010s was stepping away from whether the seed has been transgenically modified and looking at the, the bigger system, like what is going on here? What, what role do these seeds that have sort of taken over the Midwest, the corn and soybean crops in the Midwest, what, what role are they playing? And when you start looking at it like that and just sort of setting the GMO question to the side and you just sort of look at what agriculture is doing there, um, what you see, and I kind of tease it out in the book, is there's a system that structurally, by the way that it's set up, overproduces these commodities. We have way, we're producing way, way too much corn and soybeans. Um, every year we produce way more than, than can be sold. They go into storage. And that keeps the price about the level or below the level of production. So we're in the situation where these farmers are producing this stuff and not making any money off of it, at least not in the marketplace. We can talk about the subsidies that keeps them afloat, but they're not making any money in the marketplace. And so you look at that system and you, you, know, you start thinking, well, who, who benefits from this and what are the costs? And, um, and that's when you know, there was a huge drought in 2012 that saw corn and soybean yields plunge throughout the region. Um, it just sort of didn't rain one year. And all that agriculture in that area is rain fed. And that caused a big drop in, in corn and soybean yields. And then the next year, in 2013, there was a massive uh, spring storms, all spring stormed and stormed. And I got on this story about how those spring storms caused huge erosion and they had been doing it forever. And this light went off in my head, like this is the confluence of climate change. It's this system of just focusing on corn and soybeans, which go into the animal feed market basically, and also into ethanol. And this system is making loads and loads of profits for the people who supply the seeds and chemicals. And it's creating lots and lots of cheap meat, but uh, it's not really benefiting farmers much, um, but it is destroying the soil. I mean, you sort of dig into, um, you know, pun, you know, pun unintended, but you dig into the, the you know, the, the creation of the soil of the Midwest and what a rare resource it is. It's just really shocking that the system is set up that way. The way they're farming there is making the soil erode at a rate of about 16 times as fast as it's being produced. But the thing is, they start with this incredible store of topsoil that, you know, basically formed over millennia in this region of prairies and, you know, bison running over it and prairie grasses creates this incredible resource. And so you can abuse it for a good long time. And that's what we're doing. And so, you know, in the short term, those farmers in those regions are getting really high yields, but the cracks are already starting to show. And, and so, 
you know, the, the short-term economic interests are what keep it going, but like so much in a sort of capitalist uh, economy, so many of the long-term implications are invisible. There's somebody else's problem besides the people making profits. And so you can keep it going while you're wearing it down. And that's the phase we're in. But eventually you, you take away too much of it and you start to see, you know, declines in yields and you've ruined this incredibly important region for growing food. Yeah. I mean, and one of the sort of conventional stories that gets told, I think, in uh, criticism of industrial agriculture is that it's not just these big corporations that benefit, but that it's all of the, you know, mega industrial large farmers who are sort of like in cahoots, not only with those corporations, but with, you know, the government officials giving them these outrageous subsidies. So when you say that like farmers don't benefit, sounds like you're pushing back against that narrative a little bit. And I wonder if you are. Yeah, I mean, there is a degree to which the way that farmers benefit um, is overstated because, you know, basically what, what's going on there is you've got, you've got commodity markets. And so a farmer who grows corn in Iowa is growing this, the same product that a farmer in Indiana or Missouri. And then in the past 20 years, there's been this explosion in competition from Brazil. So you've got farmers in Brazil in Argentina who are growing the same product. So they end up being in ruthless competition with each other. So if you're a farmer in the Midwest and you have a thousand acres, 500 in corn and 500 in soybeans, you've got these competitors all around the world and there is this race to cut costs as much as possible and to produce as much as possible. That's, the, that's sort of the, the driving factor for the farmer that you know all the advertisements they see, everything is you know, buy this product and we'll increase your yields. And everyone's doing the same thing. And so what that leads to is very, very low prices. And, um, and oftentimes, I mean, I think there's a chart in my book showing the number of times over the past 20 years that profitability for farmers is, has, has been negative. The prices dipped under the cost of production. If you're making a tiny margin, the only way to make a lot of money is to get really, really big. And so you get this really unstable industry where the you know cutthroat competition with your neighbors. If you're really, really big, you can make a decent living at it, but there's not that many farms that are able to do that. Um, and the margin of profit most years is completely supplied by various government programs, whether it's subsidized crop insurance or just straight government payments. And what we've seen in the Trump administration has been this tendency to like literally parachute cash into farm country, into the Midwest, whether it was for Trump's trade war or for COVID-19 now. And um, so I think that's, that's going to be a really major battle. And, and I think that, you know, comes down to the farm bill. And, I, and I, what I tried to do in that Guardian piece uh, that I wrote recently that I you referred to was just say, to sort of make the argument that you know, if you're concerned about climate change, as we all should be, um, thinking about reforming farming to make it resilient to climate change, to make it be able to respond to climate change is going to be really important. And the farm bill should be just as much of a fight uh, for the climate movement as, you know, a Green New Deal or getting um, a, you know, a, a, an actual U.S. climate policy in place. 
um, the, the farm bill's got to be a big part of that. And, you know, I think that the example of the subsidies that we have had in place for decades and decades show that we are capable of making farm policy. We are capable as, of, as a society of coming together and saying, we realize that agriculture is incredibly contingent. There's, you know, all this, you know, you throw seeds in the field and hope plants come up and bad weather events happen. A society has an interest in creating a robust farming system. And that was the whole reason behind farm subsidies in the first place in, in the Great Depression. But we can actually do it better. We can update it and not make it this, you know, this sort of machine for forcing farmers to get ever bigger and for delivering profits to these giant companies. So are there any farmers who are doing it right, you know, that are approaching the current ecological and an agricultural system and sort of butting heads with these industrial farms or really taking on a strategy that you think is a winning one for the future? Yeah, so I profiled a couple in the book, and, and there was one I was really interested in, this guy Tom Franson, who's got a um, about 500-acre farm up in northern Iowa, and I went to go visit him in the spring, actually the early summer of 2019, and so Iowa had had this these mega storms that summer, and, and starting in March and going right until when I was visiting, it basically rained nonstop. And, and so, you know, basically when you just grow two crops, corn and soybeans, you plant them at the same time, you harvest them at the same time in October, November, and suddenly you've got four or five months of completely bare fields before you plant the next season. And then when you get these like vicious spring, early spring, late spring, early summer rainstorms, you get hard water hitting bare land and you get this soil erosion just you know, massive soil erosion event. And so I was able to document one um, at that time. And I went to go and, I, you know, I drove around with a scientist and we just, you know, this guy said he's um, soil erosion. And, you know, we just gaped at these massive goalies, you know, representing missing soil. And the same day as I had that tour, uh, which really put me in a dark place, uh, just because, I mean, you know, this is the jewel of our food system and here's what's happening to it. I went to go visit this guy, Tom Franzen, and everything was different on this farm. Most of his farm is still covered in a crop um, that's called cereal rye. And it's a crop that used to be grown a lot in Iowa, um, not so much anymore. You know, they basically winnowed down over the course of the second half of the 20th century from various crops to just corn and soybeans. But it grows over the winter. And so he had like this beautiful stand of rye and there was no erosion because the the stalks of the plant block the rain from hitting the soil. The roots of the plant hold the soil in. So he's doing a thing where he's got corn, soybeans, rye, cows, and hogs, and they all come together and he, you know, he rotates them. There's a rotational system in place. And this biodiversity that he's creating basically takes the place of chemicals. You don't need herbicides. You basically don't need fertilizer. And he's getting these great yields. And, um, and so, you know, you, you go into this farm and it's like this microcosm of how it could be. A really bountiful future with all these different kinds of foods um, and um, beautiful farm, 
soil's been kept in place. He's actually building soil there instead of losing it. And, and you wonder, well, why isn't it like this? And, and it's basically, you know, he's organic. He's certified organic. So that gives him a premium in the market. And a lot of his neighbors are just not going to want to do that. They, you know, they think their chemicals are absolutely necessary. And it's hard for him to convince them otherwise. And then the other thing is by getting into this other stuff, he is not, you know, if you grow rye, then you're not getting corn and soybean subsidies. There is no subsidy for rye. Grass-finished beef and, um, and pork, you get a premium in the market, but you also are taking on more risk than you do if you do um, beef the conventional way in Iowa. And so the current system makes it really hard for this kind of example to spread. So bringing back these old technologies, merging them with new technologies, right. supporting those mid-level farmers, fixing yes. the farm bill. Is that all we need to do to solve the crisis? I mean, all. It's a lot. But right. I mean, what do you think really needs to happen for us to truly address the food justice issue that's at the heart of your book? Yeah. So... Um, so the kind of agriculture I'm talking about is more labor intensive. It does uh, require more workers. And I think we could figure out a way to make it, to make those jobs. They don't have to be brutal. They don't have to be backbreaking. They don't have to pay poverty wages. We could structure a food system um, where that doesn't happen. And we see that there is, especially in times like right now, when we have really high unemployment, uh, there is a need for skilled work. And I think farm work is actually extremely skilled work um, and people need to be trained for it. And I think it could actually be a benefit. There could be a jobs program of, you know, skilled labor working on farms that isn't so horrible that literally they get refugees in from some of the most desperate situations in the world because that's how bad the work is. It's people who literally have no other choice. We don't have to make it that way. And I think we could figure out ways to make the, the problem of this kind of agriculture being more labor intensive, we could make that into a benefit um, if we wanted to as a society. And I, I think that is one of the things that uh, appeals to me about the Green New Deal. It uh, talks about you know, creating you know, well you know, decently paying, livable wage paying jobs in um, in green industries, and I think we could think of farming as a green industry. And if we as a species want to hang around here and have a robust food system, then we need a, to figure out a way to stop losing soil at 16 times the rate of reproduction in the Midwest, and that would be another benefit of this. Um, and also, you know, making the agriculture there more resilient to the coming and current shocks of climate change. You know, fiercer and fiercer storms, longer and more brutal droughts. Um, and, you know, these become existential questions as climate change proceeds. We have links in the show notes to Tom Philpott's book, Perilous Bounty, as well as to some of his writing about agriculture during the coronavirus pandemic. Plus, links to two previous Smarty Pants episodes about the future of food and a plug in there for one of my favorite local farms, Sylvan Aqua, which is reimagining sustainable agriculture in exciting new ways that include ground sriracha chicken delivered to your door if you're in the Washington, D.C. area. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.